for checking out the Hope Culture Church podcast. To learn more and to stay connected, visit www.hopeculturechurch.com or follow us on social media at Hope Culture Church. We hope you enjoy this week's message. All right, I'm excited to continue our baggage series. I was told this week that I say baggage a little funny. Um, I did not know that, so thanks for pointing that out, guys. Now I'm just going to be self-conscious the entire service. No, I'm just kidding. We're excited. This is week three. I don't know about you, but this has been a series that even as I've been in the Word myself, it's been encouraging me. It's been helping me. So I'm hoping that the same is happening for you, that you've been encouraged, that you've found some freedom, that you've been able to travel through life a little bit lighter. And that's really the whole premise of the series, is that we could live free and travel light, that we're all carrying around things with us that we're not meant to be carrying around. Um, we've talked about the analogy of traveling and things like that. I don't know about you, there's sometimes where you're carrying something so long that you don't realize it's wearing on you until you take it off. Um, if I've, I've had a backpack on before, and after a, a few hours, you stop really noticing that it's bothering you, but then when you take it off, all of a sudden you're like, oh man, my like, back is tired. I'm kind of sore. I don't know. I've heard this happens with purses. I don't have any personal experience with purses, but apparently if you're shopping for too long, you can get tired if that's a thing. But we carry these things around, and we get so used to them being a part of our life that we stop really even noticing that they're there. And I think there's things that God wants to have us lay down at the cross and not carry around with us anymore. Last week, we talked about relational baggage. This week, we're talking about the baggage of guilt and shame. The baggage of guilt and shame. Those are real things. Some of us are very aware that those are in our life. We walk around um, with regret or, or it takes us a long time to get over things that we've done, shortcomings we see in ourselves or things like that. We have this baggage that comes from guilt and shame. And I was thinking, and that's, wouldn't it be nice to live without any shame in your life? Wouldn't that be nice? Some heads are nodding. I think that is how we are, as Christians are called to live. So I'm excited this morning. I believe that through the proclamation of the word, you will walk out of here without some shame and without some guilt that you maybe walked in with. And I'm excited because that is how it's intended to be. In Genesis 1, God creates everything. He speaks the world into existence. He creates things. He says they're good. And then he rests. And then we're, man is created, Adam and Eve. And it says this at the end of chapter 2. It says that they were naked and unashamed, that there was no shame. Part of paradise, part of what it looks like to have perfect relationship with God when everything's the way it's supposed to be is a lack of shame. There's no shame before sin enters the world. Everything's perfect. They're in, they're in relationship with God. They're not worried about it. Everything's totally fine. And I think that God offers that to us through the cross. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. I'm hoping that we can get back to that Genesis 2 state, not the naked part, but the unashamed part, all right? Nobody's walking out of here naked, all right? Nobody, we're not, that's not part of the thing. So what is guilt and shame? Because a lot of times we lump them into one thing as if they're, they're exactly the same, but they're a little bit different and there's a little nuance there. Guilt says, I'm not forgiven. Guilt is a legal term. You know, you go to court and you are declared innocent or guilty. Guilt is a result of something we have done, shortcomings in our life, what the Bible would we call sin. Sin is an archery term just meaning you missed the mark. 
So when we miss God's holy standard, which the Bible teaches everyone has, Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not a surprise to any of us. All of us know we're not perfect. The person next to us knows you're not perfect. And so the result is that we have created a broken relationship between us and God. And guilt says, I'm not forgiven. Shame then piles onto guilt and says, it's still who I am. Shame says, it's still who I am. We make it part of our identity. Even psychologists outside of anything um, related to Christianity or the Bible say that shame is when remorse for things that we did or didn't even do or were done to us become part of how we view ourselves. Shame becomes part of our identity because we have guilt that isn't dealt with. So that's kind of what guilt and shame are. And condemnation, maybe you've heard that word, is the same. It says, my life is worthy of judgment. And that's true before Christ, because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all guilty, but the good news is that God loved us so much that he wanted to do something about it, that he sent Jesus to pay the price for that. In the Old Testament, before Jesus came, they would sacrifice animals. They had these laws, the Levitical laws and the priestly laws and all these things that they would do to become clean before God, so that everything was okay and atoned for. Um, And then Jesus comes as the perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 9 talks about it and compares the two, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Hebrews 9 verse 13 says this, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, who says that? It's a cow, sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. The next verse says, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, he's the perfect sacrifice is what it's saying, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Cleanse our consciences. A lot of times we think of the cross only in legal terms and that we are declared innocent, but we still feel guilty. But the reality is, Scripture teaches our consciences are actually cleansed in that moment. We're no longer to focus on our sin. We're supposed to focus on the cross. We can wake up not worried, what am I going to do today? I already feel bad about yesterday. I'm hoping I don't do this thing again. I I just, I'm struggling. And we're automatically already thinking about sin instead of focusing on the cross and saying, thank you that your mercy and grace are new every morning, that that's not who I am anymore. Some of us are already thinking, I don't know about that. I don't know if it, if it works like that. For Hebrews 10 keeps going. It explains it even further. This is Hebrews 10. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And so it's this both and thing. You are made perfect in a moment, but at the same time, you're being made holy. You're still being transformed into your image. We are becoming who God says we already are. We're becoming who God says we already are. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Let that sink in for a minute. Jesus paid the price so that it doesn't have to be paid anymore. Where we have been forgiven, 
Sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. And some of us are trying to pay for something that's already been purchased. Some of us are trying to pay for something that's already been purchased. I don't know about you, but sometimes when you go out to lunch with your friends, you get in that argument match of who's going to pay, I'm going to pay, you're going to pay. We go back and forth and eventually one of you wins, right? Well, it always either happens that they pay or you pay or you split it. I have yet to see anybody that says, I refuse to let you pay by yourself. I'm going to also pay. Ring us up twice for the same thing. No one ever does that. I've not had that happen. And I've been in these battles. I've been on both sides of them. I've lost. I've won. I've never been like, hey, you paid for it. I'm, gonna, I'm still going to pay for it because I don't accept. And the, the, the waiter or the waitress are just like, what am I supposed to do? Like charge you for the meal twice? But that is what we're doing with God. Jesus paid the price for our sins, yet we want to hold on to the guilt and shame associated with them because internally we think that is how we're helping pay for it. We know we can't pay for it by ourselves, and so we accept his sacrifice and his love, but we still feel bad, so we cling and say, I'm going to beat myself up a little longer. So my question for you is, how long? How long? Are you going to beat yourself up for an hour, a week, a month, a couple years? Either way, it's not necessary. It is completely paid for. And all you're doing in that moment is trying to clean your own conscience that has already been sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. That is good news. That is the gospel. That is what we're celebrating. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him who knew no sin... Who do you guys think that is? Jesus, right? Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is amazing. Jesus is God in the flesh, never sin, perfect Savior, became one of us out of love to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserved, and died on the cross. And that's significant because it, fills a, it fulfills a lot of prophecies from the Old Testament. And the Jewish people would know that anything hanging on a cross is cursed, right? We learned that. Some of you who've been around the Bible for a long time recognize the story of when they put the snake on the pole and whoever looks at it knows that they'll be healed, which is such a weird story until you understand that anything on a cross is cursed by God. So they knew that the snake was cursed and would no longer bite them and die, which is what was happening to them. And so Jesus became sin who knew no sin. He became sin. That's what the scripture teaches, not just in 2 Corinthians, in other places. He became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And he hung on a tree. And so God did not curse Jesus on the tree, but cursed our sin on the tree so that we could be set completely free from it. That's what Romans 5 teaches. Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified, justified, again, a legal term, just saying, just as if you never sinned. You've been declared innocent. And it's through faith. Therefore, since you have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. That is, that is an offer that's available to everyone in the room. And some of you have received that offer but aren't experiencing the benefit of it yet. 
because there's no faith surrounding it. We just need to receive that in faith. I'm going to talk about that more in just a second. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So picture this. This morning, um, we were getting ready to make the coffee. We usually start it right around 7.15, 7.30 to make sure it's ready on time because we make a lot of it at once and it takes like an hour or so. And so we get here and we bring our own coffee beans, but the coffee maker is here and it's locked in a closet. But they usually set it out for us the night before and they forgot. So I'm walking around the building trying to find somebody to unlock the door, but apparently it's in a special closet that only certain people have keys to. And so we had to wait until the right people got here to open it, and then they had the right key that let us get the coffee maker. And so faith is like the key in that story. And that room is grace. We have been justified through faith. If you look at verse 2, through whom we have gained access by faith, that's the key, door opens, into this grace in which we now stand. You've moved locations, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We are now, for those of us who have decided to become followers of Jesus, under grace. Our sin has been dealt with, has been paid for. We don't need to carry guilt and shame around with us anymore. Some of us, this actually starts making us uncomfortable at some point because when you start talking about grace so much, people are like, well, doesn't that mean it doesn't matter what we do? Doesn't that mean we can just keep on sinning? And actually, Paul anticipates this argument. In the next chapter, he goes like this, rhetorically, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Other translations say that grace may abound. He says, by no means. In Greek, that's meganeto, no way, absolutely not. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? See, it's not just a position thing that we move into grace, but it's actually a transformation thing that it's no longer who we are, that we've been made new. We have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. So it's both positional and an actual transformation of God into us being a new person. And then he continues in chapter 6 saying, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We celebrated baptisms this morning. This is exactly what he's talking about. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. He's saying baptism is showing what is happening, that as we go underwater, it's not just Christ who is on the cross in our sin, but it's our sin. And as we go under, that's washed away, and as we come back up, that represents new life, new birth, new you. You've moved into grace out of law. And not only does that mean you're not in trouble with God anymore, but it means you don't have to live the same life you were living. He's given you the power through his Holy Spirit to change that. 
I love how the message translation puts this passage. It gives it like some imagery. Um, It's a paraphrase. I don't suggest it for your daily Bible reading, but once in a while it's really fun to reread a passage in this way. So he says, so what do we do? Keep on sinning so that God can keep forgiving? I should hope not. If we left the country where sin is sovereign and sin is control, how can we still live in our old house there? He's saying, you're new. You've moved. It's different. The sin is gone. The shame is gone. And so is the power of it. You're brand new. Or didn't you realize that we packed up there and left for good? That is what happened in baptism. I love that. Keep going to the next slide. It says, when we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's so powerful, such good imagery. And so, how? How do we actually do that? We confess. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Again, bringing the legal aspect in it, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We just need to turn to Jesus. Repent and choose to follow him. This doesn't mean we don't care about sin anymore or become flippant about it and it doesn't matter. That's not what Paul is teaching. In fact, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. There's something that comes when all of a sudden you realize that you weren't living up to God's standard. That you, you may be doing pretty well or you may be doing better than the person next to you, but when we actually look at what God's holding us to, we didn't make it. And that brings a sense of godly sorrow. And that godly sorrow brings repentance. That word is metanoia, which just means turning I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about that picture of playing on the floor with my kids. I don't know if you guys have any wind-up toys or any of those cars you pull back, and then it goes forward, um, things like that. So I was picturing sitting on the floor with them, and they send it to me, and I pick it up and turn it around and send it back. That is repentance. It's changing direction. And godly sorrow does that. When all of a sudden you say, hey, I didn't see it like that before, but now I see it and it was wrong. And God, I am sorry. And I'm not going to live like that anymore. Thank you for your forgiveness. I'm going to head the other direction now, believing and trusting that I'm forgiven. Worldly sorrow brings death. Regret is a result of holding on to our own guilt and not letting God forgive us. This is something that is amazing. This is the gospel. This is what it's all about, is that Jesus forgives us and offers to make us brand new. Sometimes we we think that it's just grace in the beginning, but it's grace the whole time. We've moved into a new country, as the message puts it. We live, now stand in grace. It's through faith. He even says it again in Ephesians. For it is by grace, through faith, that you have been saved. 
not by works, lest any man should boast. You have nothing that you can hold on to and say, I did this, or I did this, I paid this part of it, God. Even though you already paid for the whole meal, I'm still going to, can I cover the tip? Like, no, it doesn't work like that. We didn't pay for any of it. And I don't know about you, but when somebody pays for my meal, the best response is just to say thank you. It's gratitude. And that should be our response to God. We should wake up instead of focusing on our shortcomings. We should wake up focused on his goodness and with a lens of gratitude, saying thank you, Lord. I, I know that there's people in here who are struggling with real things, real things that you want to deal with, different things. Your sin may look different than the person sitting next to you or the person two rows in front of you, but it may still be there. And you're wondering, is that covered? Yes. His blood covers that, but it also gives you the power to stop, that you don't have to keep living that life anymore, that he can free you from that. For me, the biggest revelation and growth in my Christian life came when I stopped worrying and focusing just on my own sin and started focusing on the cross. I read a book that talked about preaching the gospel to yourself every day. And so that's become my new habit, just to wake up in the morning and thank God for his goodness and his grace today. Thank you for your mercy. That's new every morning. Thank you that you, you have things for me to do today that I'm not worried about sinning against you. I already know you love me and I'm going to live out of that love. I'm going to live based on this place and this grace that I stand. That's going to be where I live from instead of trying to live from that old house that I was so accustomed to. And that's the hard part is we've grown accustomed to the old house. When he's given us the keys to the new place he wants us to live in but we go back to what's familiar. We go back to what we know, but we don't have to. We just need to turn, confess, and head the new direction with thankfulness. That's what baptism represents. That's what the gospel is. We can't earn it. It's a free gift of God. And whoever would confess in their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord will be saved. Because the reality is, is this isn't automatic. There is a decision to lay down your life. When you're crucified with Christ, when you're buried in his death and raised to new life, that does mean you're becoming a new person in him. And yes, absolutely 100%, I will argue with you forever that that is the better choice, but that doesn't mean it doesn't come with the cost of laying yourself down. And that's, that's the decision that's before all of us when we first decide to follow Jesus. Will I die to me and live for him? There's nothing better you can do. Because when you walk in grace and freedom, there's, it's so much lighter. I've met a lot of Christians who I just wish they would walk in the freedom and grace that God offers. And that doesn't mean that our sin doesn't matter anymore. That's what Romans 6 is saying, is it does matter. It actually gives us the ability to live differently. 1 John actually says, if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. 
that we're supposed to so change the way we think about this thing that it's not when we sin, but it's if we sin. If we sin, it's fine. Go to him, confess it, and turn and go the new direction. Just, it's already paid for. But we're not supposed to live with the constant mentality that this is the end. This is what it is. This is how it's always going to be. Because that just leads to more guilt and more shame, which weighs us down and causes us to think that God is so distant from us and that he doesn't care about us and that we can't live up to what he wants. And the truth is you can't on your own, but you can in him. Let's be people who live in grace. That is not just grace that saves us, but it's grace that empowers us. And the way you get there is through faith. And faith comes by the hearing of the word. We need to be people who love the word of God. I know that's that's not what we want to hear. We just want to hear, okay, my, my guilt and shame are gone and I can go home now. And that is true. If you believe in Jesus, your guilt and shame are gone. But if you want to grow in your understanding of the freedom you have, dig into the Word of God. I want to quickly go over what I listed as seven things that are the result of having guilt and shame gone from your life. If you want, you can pull out your phone and take a screenshot of this because I'm not going to go over all the scripture, but I would love for you to make this your, your devotionals this week or just a, a thing that you do with your family tonight. Just go over some of these passages, whatever you want. But the result of having no guilt and shame is that you have a clean conscience, which is really the best feeling. Just to know that between me and God, things are good. Everything's okay. And that is not me that is not arrogance. That is because of the goodness of God and the grace of what he did on the cross. And the second thing is, is it gives us peace with God. It gives us peace with God. It gives us access into God's presence. Hebrews talks about this. So, you know, if you've been around church for a while, you know that when Jesus died on the cross and breathed his last and said, it is finished, there was a curtain in the temple that ripped from from one end to the other, just totally ripped. And that symbolized that we could now go into the presence of God because our sins had been paid for. Because before that, you couldn't. You had to be made ceremonial clean. clean. And so now we have access to the presence of God. And Hebrews explains that not only do we have access, but we're supposed to go boldly before the throne knowing that our sin has been sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. We have access to God. We can go into his presence. It results in joy. Joy is a result of not having guilt and shame. That's easy to figure out because when you're feeling guilty about something, it's, it's evident. And even if you can hide it well, you're just feeling it. You don't have true joy from the Lord. It also results in hope because you know that things have been dealt with between you and God and that there's eternity in front of you where you're going to spend it with him and be united with him. It also results in a desire to worship God. When you realize what God's done for you, you can't help but be excited. Maybe you're new to church and you're like, I don't get why everybody's so excited while we're worshiping. Why are people raising their hands? It's kind of freaking me out a little bit. It's because they realize what God has done for them. And it's their natural response just to say thank you. We praise the name of our Lord, our God, because he paid the price for our sins. And the next thing is it creates in us a desire to serve God. I love this. I'll hit on the Isaiah 6 really quick. In Isaiah 6, 
Isaiah is a prophet in the Old Testament. A prophet is somebody who would hear from God and then speak to God's people. And so Isaiah is taken into the heavenly realm. He's having this dream before God. It's the year of King Uzziah as king. And he comes and he gets into God's presence. And all of a sudden, he realizes that's not good. And this is a man of God. He goes, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. And he's a prophet. The best thing he's doing for God, the most important thing he could put on his resume is that I speak on behalf of God to the people. And the thing he points out as being not good before God is that I'm a man of unclean lips. The best I have to offer is not good in front of God. And he goes, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. He thinks he's about to die. And he sees an angel coming for him, this seraphim coming for him, and it has a hot coal, and he goes, this is how I'm going to die. This is what's going to happen. This angel is going to kill me because I'm in the presence of God and I'm not perfect. But that's not what happened. The angel didn't come to exterminate him, but to exterminate his sin. The coal came, they touched the coal to his lips, and they talked about how his sins were forgiven and he was made clean, which represents what Jesus will do. And then Isaiah's response is, here am I, send me. Here am I. Send me. I'll do whatever you want, to do, want me to do. Whatever you're asking, God. We, as a result of having no guilt and shame, when we realize the forgiveness we have, have a desire to serve God. To go back to what we, we opened with with Adam and Eve, is it didn't stay that way with no shame. They, they sinned against God. They disobeyed what he directly asked them to do. And what did they do? They ran and hid. They felt guilty about it. God comes down in the cool of the day. Adam, where are you? He knew where Adam was, right? He's giving he's Adam a chance to come out. But, but he feels guilty and shame. They actually went. They realized they were naked for the first time. They realized the sin that they had committed, that they had disobeyed God. And they were like, I can't be around God. This, they, they get fig leaves and cover themselves up and and that is our natural tendency still with sin, is to run from God. But if we have been forgiven, the response is to run to him. The prodigal son, the father is waiting there with open arms, waiting for when the son will come home. God is asking, will you stop running from me and start running to me. I want to forgive you. I want you to come, confess, repent, change direction, and I will forgive you and justify you just as if you had never sinned and make you righteous. Christianity is not just about praying a prayer to get to, ho- to, get to heaven. It's not about rules. It's not about just being a better person. It's not about having help in hard times and all of those things have some amount of truth to them, but Christianity is dying to your old way of living and being made new in Christ. And that's the offer on the table for anybody today who's never made a decision to follow Jesus. You just need to come to him and say, I know I've messed up, but I believe you paid the price that I can't pay, that Jesus died on the cross and rose again for my sins. I'm choosing to do things your way now. Thank you for forgiving me. And then we'll baptize you. We'll have baptisms again next week. 
And we'll have them every week as long as people make that decision. So if that's you today, I would love to talk to you after service. If you're like, I've never actually made that decision. I've never been a Christian before. Would you just let me know? Would you just raise your hand quick? It doesn't have to be for everybody to see. I just want to know and I want to follow up with you. I'm not going to be creepy. I'm not going to show up at your house. I just want to pray with you and, and welcome you to God's family. Is there anybody who would want to do that today?